Excuse me. You want to open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 4 is where we're going to be. And we're going to do a little tag team reading because we're going to read through that entire chapter together. And uh, let me find it on my phone here. Had everything ready except for that. All right, so this is going to be Judges chapter 4. We'll start right at verse 1. And what do you guys think happens? What does Israel do? As we've been hearing, right? Now, here it is. Here it goes. Again, the Israelites did evil, surprise, surprise, in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of, of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Hashan Hagam because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cru- cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lebanon, was leading Israel at that time. She had, court, she had held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abaddon, king from uh, Abaddon, from Kadesh and Nephtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men to um, Nephtalon and Zebulun, and lead them up to the Mount Tabor. I will, I will lead Sisera, the commander of, the, of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to Kishon River, and give him into your hands. But Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Well, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. And so Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Haber the Canaanite had left the other Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zenanim near Kedesh. And when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hegayim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down, uh, went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim. And all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I am thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. 
Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground and died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you were looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Thanks. I was listening to a sermon uh, this week myself by uh, Alistair McGrath, and uh, he he made a really thoughtful statement in the middle of his sermon, and I think he's right. Uh, If you guys are praying for the preaching of God's word, the same words will be ten times more effective. Right? I think there's the, the idea that God's word and the prayers of the people bring the spirit of God to life in our souls and in our church. So I'd ask that you would be praying for your own heart, for the hearts of those you're sitting beside, and for the frail man attempting to preach this morning. Uh, September 13th, uh, 1814 has gone down as the Battle of Baltimore. Uh, In the Battle of Baltimore, you had some British forces trying to overtake Fort McHenry. Uh, If Fort McHenry would have been defeated, it could have been a key victory for the British forces in the Battle of 1812. So for 25 hours, there was this bombardment of, of shelling of Fort McHenry. But at dawn, some Americans looked up. And there was no British Union Jack flag raised. The American flag still flew. Now, most of you actually know that story, but you don't know it told that way. You know it as, oh, say, can you see? At dawn's early light. When we are looking at the text today, Judges chapter 4 is the historical record of the battle. We're actually going to spend most of our time in Judges 5, which is the song that retells the same battle. Songs are poetry set to music. Songs are, uh, they give facts, they give details, but they're actually trying to stir the spirits. And we want to be stirred. Like, if we read poetry in the scriptures, if we read a psalm in the scriptures, and we feel nothing, we're actually reading incorrectly. They're meant to stir us. And so when we read Judges 5, we're going to hear the same story told that was in Judges 4, but we're going to have a passage that calls people to action. We're going to have a a passage that calls people to worship. Uh, But before I start, I want to address two potential elephants in the room. Uh, And this comes from just the reading that we just heard. So elephant number one, the Old Testament is gruesome, bloody, and dark. Really? Tent peg? Temple? Go and be blessed, church. Uh, The other 
I think the other elephant in the room sitting right beside that one is, aren't we supposed to be turning the other cheek and being blessed peacemakers? So let me just try to address those before we walk into, back into the book of Judges. Uh, so again, the first complaint might be something like this or critique. That people might say, I can't trust the Bible or in a God that ordains such brutal killings and gruesome events. You know, chapter 4 just describes jail. In chapter 5, she's called a blessed woman. So what's interesting about this complaint, it, it actually can sometimes come from the same people who on a different day will complain, I can't trust the Bible because it's too soft and too kind. You know, so kind of what is it? Is, it, is, it, is the Bible gruesome and raw or is it soft and cuddly? Uh, now, personally, I believe the Bible is raw because the world we live in is raw. So we have Bibles that speak of rape and war and sexual chaos because we have a world of rape and war and sexual chaos. Uh, but, but the beautiful thing that what Scripture is going to say is we have a God that enters the madness and actually enters the madness to bring both justice and redemption. So as raw as the Bible is, it, it actually addresses the reality of a, of a raw world. But that kind of leads me into the second elephant. Aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek and be blessed peacemakers, right? So how can God commend a woman taking a tent peg to a guy's temple in one place in Scripture, and then in the other place, Jesus would tell us to turn the other cheek? Now, this is a pretty common, I think, critique. And and it's usually because people haven't read all of Scripture or haven't read the story in its fullness, um, Christians have been explaining this seeming shift in salvation history for all time. And the, the huge shift in the history of God is the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There was a shift. In fact, if you read through Scripture fully, there's been multiple shifts in salvation history of God. Right? There was the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, sinless, walking in the presence of God, and then their sin ripped them out of that beautiful land into the raw world. And that raw world got very ugly very quickly, and then God actually destroyed that entire world with a flood, preserving just one family. But let, let me just talk a little bit more specifically about how we're reading Judges and how we read Judges on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's important to know that prior to Jesus Christ, God revealed himself primarily through the people of Israel in the land of Israel. Through the people of Israel in the land of Israel. So God chose that particular people for a particular time and put them in a particular place to communicate to the world, this is what God is like. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Merciful to generation to generation. And yet, will hold people to account at the same time. Now, God does this under what's called a theocratic kingdom. So we talk about a democracy, which is a a ruling authority of the people. Israel is a theocracy. There is one king, and his name is Yahweh. God sets himself up as the king of Israel. And then what he does is he commands his citizens 
right? The, the Israelites, go enact justice in my name. Go do things in righteousness in my name. Enact vengeance in my name. Also extend mercy in my name. And this is why when we're reading the book of Judges, this is why Israel kills and destroys all that is polluted in the land. The pagan people, the, the pagan gods, the pagan kings. Why? Because the land symbolized something. The people symbolized something. What they symbolized, they were supposed to symbolize God's purity and God's holiness. No evil ideas or evil people were permitted to breathe. No pagan god or person should remain to pollute God's holy place and God's holy people. Again, this was a unique time in history because at the arrival of Jesus Christ, the people of God is no longer a particular place or in a particular place and with a particular people, right? In Jesus, we come to see something different. Jesus enters and he actually takes on the curse and judgment that every person deserves. Uh, in taking the curse, those who trust in him receive the blessing. And then those who trust in Jesus Messiah, those who put their faith in him, they join his people. They, they become the covenant people of God. Uh, and so welcome, if you're a part of the church, right? The covenant people of God is a global community people who trust in Jesus and choose to follow him in different local churches around the world. Uh, and our goal is similar to the Israel, yet we do it differently, right? So the goal of this place and this people is we want to honor the holiness of God. We want to make sure his name is lifted up. Uh, but if there's someone here who's not living a Christian life, who professes to be one, we either remove such one from membership through something called church discipline, or we just don't bring them in until they do have a repenting relationship with God. We protect the purity and the honor of God's name in our community, but we don't do it through tent pegs and uh, through the temple anymore. The purity is still important. The holiness is still important, but it begins to be fleshed out differently when you're a global people across many nations, across many lands. Um, also, too, one thing that's so important about the church, we exist, the Christian church, we exist primarily to magnify the suffering Son of God. And thus, the church's primary mission is more about suffering, service, and sacrifice. This is why it's more likely and more appropriate for Christians to take tent pegs to the temple for Jesus than to go out with tent pegs in our hands. It's a call to be a soldier, but not the kind of soldier that we have in Judges because our mission is shifted in salvation history. One day, the Lord will come back and he'll make all things right, every enemy defeated. The way that we bring enemies into God's family now is through the reconciling message of the cross. Now, this idea of being a pure people, having a pure place, calling people to repent in Jesus, this isn't popular either. Uh, this, uh, to be a holy church and to be a holy people, it's going to stir up people's ire. They're, people are going to push against God's word, not want to submit to his world, word. Uh, and this is why Christians all over the world still experience martyrdom and marginalization. Because God's word's never been popular. Never, I don't think it ever will be. 
But rather than fight back with weapons, we lay down our lives. We lay down our lives. And it's no less gruesome and it's no less brutal. So let's talk a little bit about where this text is going. And primarily what the text is going to do between chapter 4 and chapter 5 in Judges is it's giving qualities that God is trying to say, these should mark my people. These are qualities to be honored. These are qualities to pursue. When we fall short, qualities that would require us to confess and repent. Um, and I'm going to give them to you on the front end and then show you them from the text. Uh, we should be a willing people, right? Willing, available, submitted people. Uh, we should also be people of valor, courageous. And then the third mark is people who love God and are loyal to him. Uh, Let me show you where I'm going by starting with the song. So come with me to the song, and I'll show you how it points back to sections in chapter 4 as well. So this song is composed. It says in verse 1, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Ebonim, on that day. So on the day of victory, here's the song. It says that the leaders took the lead in Israel. That the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. And all those who went out, all those who were willing to fight for God's name, praise God. It says, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you, went, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. It says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. It says, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? It says, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. So again, this song is stirring the listeners who will sing it and embrace the melody Praise God for people who are willing and available to serve God. Now, if you go back to chapter 4, why are we praising God? Because things were pretty rough. So if you go back to chapter 4, because of people's rebellion against God, he sold them again into the hand of a tyrant. The last few weeks, the tyrants have been neighbors. They've been outside Israel. This is, this is someone living right next door to them in Canaan. This is one of the rulers that they didn't kick out, that God had ordered them to do. They don't. And now Jabin, king of Canaan, is reigning. He's controlling them, and he's controlling them primarily through this general Sisera. And Sisera has 900 chariots of iron to keep all the people of Israel under his thumb. How bad is it? Israel is cruelly oppressed for 20 years. Now, in the midst of this oppression, God says, we read here that there was a, a prophetess named Deborah. 
In the midst of this oppression, she still was judging Israel at the time. Uh, it says that she sat under a, a palm, uh, bearing her own name up in Ephraim, and people came to her for judgment. So God raises up a woman who's speaking God's word and giving uh, good judgments, it says. And in verse 6, she summons Barak, the son of Ibnim, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? So God speaks through Deborah. God has commanded you, Barak, go gather men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And then God is telling uh, Barak what's going to happen. I'm going to draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. But God says, I will give him into your hand. Now, by the way, up to this point, as we've been reading through the book of Judges, especially like last week, the judges seem to be serving God without any sort of black marks. We watched last week, Othniel was this mighty champion. We saw Ehud, the sneaky assassin. We saw the one-verse wonder, uh, Shamgar, bring victory. And now we have our first little black mark. Because a clear word comes to someone who's supposed to be a deliverer. And Barak says to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He's hesitant. He's, he's, he's pausing. He needs to have you know, some sort of prophetic talisman come along with him. Oh, you seem spiritual. You come too. And so there's a little bit of a word of rebuke in verse 9. And she says, I, I'll go with you. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, as soon as that black mark is put to the side, we do have a willing servant, Barak. He actually obeys. <laughs> he wrote, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Willing people went. Little pause. Willing. Praise God. As I was just thinking about this week about willing servants, uh, one, it caused me just to stop and thank God for the different willing servants that it takes to serve in a local church. I'm thankful for people who volunteer their time, who teach, who pray, who, who serve, who send meals, who, uh, you know, people who have built walls, people who have clean floors. Like, praise God for willing servants. But I also took a step farther, and I was thinking about, um, you know, kind of modern Christian Jimmy. Um, modern Christian Jimmy could be found in any church, not necessarily this church, but probably this church, that wants to serve God. And so they, like, go take a spiritual gift inventory online. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these spiritual gift inventory online. You go online, and you say stuff you like and say stuff you don't like. And then at the end, supposedly the stuff that you like is what you're supposed to do for God. I'm really struck by the fact that I think the willing servants in the history of God did not choose things that were fulfilling. Stephen did not take stones for Jesus Christ because it was fulfilling. I was thinking of William Booth who ministered in the slums 
of England preaching the gospel and raising up a whole ministry called the Salvation Army that continues to minister to the hardest of the day. It's tough for me to think, while he was holding his wife dying of cancer, saying, this is fulfilling. The kind of willing servants are always called to grave risk-taking, sacrifice, hard things. Is it worthy? Yes. In heaven, is it fulfilling? Amen. Yes. But the willing servants here in this text, they're going against a mighty person who's oppressed a nation for 20 years. And through the word of a woman saying, God has said this, they go out. And that's why in song, they're recorded. Praise God for the willing who go out in the face of great odds seemingly against them, but they go because the word of God has spoken. And so as I've prayed for our church this week, I have prayed, Lord, whatever God is putting on a young girl's heart or an old man's heart, Give them a willing heart to obey the word of the Lord. It may be hard. It may push against your flesh. It may be the farthest thing from fulfilling that comes to your mind. But you know it's right. You know it honors God. I loved a quote given by John Wesley 250 years ago about such willing people. Wesley said, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin. And desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell. And set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. Let us be willing. Let us be willing. But from willing too. There's this turn in in the song. Of not just willing. But men and women of valor. A a courage in God's word. So we go back to the poem. Verse 10, it says, Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. So we're supposed to retell this story. Wherever you go, tell the story of such men. Tell the story of such women. To the sound of the musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. And then down to the gates marched the people of God. Verse 12 says, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Ibonim. Then down marched. Notice some words here. So they, they feel called, they're going, they're marching out. Who went though? There's a remnant of the noble. So a remnant is a small portion. Uh, who are they? The people of the Lord. They march down for me against the mighty. Now, this is where it gets interesting. In the next set of verses, in Scripture are preserved the, the valiant tribes that went up to fight according to the word of the Lord, and also preserved in history are the cowards who stayed home. It says, from Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley. And following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. And from Makur, march down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah. And Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. 
So praise God. Ephraim was there, Benjamin and Zebulun. And then there's this pause at the end of verse 15. It says, but among the clans of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. They talked a lot about going down to fight. Uh, Maybe there was a paralysis of analysis. Maybe this is a Hebrew idiom for twiddling of thumbs. But Reuben didn't go. Song continues, why did... Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds and hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there, was, there were great searchings of hearts. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. So these, names, these tribes are called out. You didn't come. You didn't listen to the word. You took care of the sheep, and you took care of the ships, but you didn't come. But verse 18 says, Zebulun is the people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. Now, one thing I want to say and this is where this text will lead us, the qualities that are getting called out and and praised and and hopefully rooted in the heart of his people are always going to be based on what you actually believe about God. The Bible is not a self-help book talking about let's be smarter, better, faster. The Bible is the testimony of the God who saves, the God who is mighty, the God who heals, the God who destroys the enemies. I mean, even just so far in this psalm, there's been this blessing of the Lord. But in verse 11, it talks about the triumphs of the Lord. Back in verse 4, it describes God as one who is sovereign over the mountains of, of Moab and Seir. The God who had thundered and lightning at Sinai came down to fight. If you're like me reading this text this week, I want to be willing and I want to be courageous. It's going to come down. Do I believe in this gloriously great majestic God in the Bible that does marvelous things? Because the psalm goes on to explain, or this song goes on to describe, how did God bring the great army of chariots to ruin? It says in verse 20, it says, from heaven the stars fought. Now again, this is, this is picturesque language, which is common in poetry. But it's describing that looking up into the sky, the stars of heaven engaged in battle on earth. Well, what did they do? Well, from their courses, they fought against Sisera. Well, verse 21, what did they do? It says the torrent Kishon. Remember Kishon River? That's where uh, Deborah had commanded Barak, take the army, go to the Kishon River. Go there. And what happened? The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. And then it says, then the loud beat the horses' hooves with the galloping, galloping of the steeds. 
It mentions another group that didn't go, cursed Miraz, says the angel of the Lord cursed its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So can you imagine, how could you be, defeat an army of 900 chariots? Well, if you get to a river and the heavens begin to fight by sending down massive amounts of rain, so much so that it overflows the banks of a river and it spreads entirely out across the plain. You know how useful an iron chariot is when it's in four feet of mud? It's not very useful. You, at least I read chapter four. I'm like, why did Sisera get off his chariot and run? Oh, it was stuck. Right? Now, all of a sudden, you have 10,000 troops against 900 people who don't have chariots anymore. God got the victory here. You go back to chapter 4, verse 11, or verse 12. It says, you know, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera, he called down the chariots. All the men were with him. It says, Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Right? The valor of Barak was based in believing that the Lord was going to bring this people into their hand. Right? They had to show up first before a raindrop fell. But they believed God. And so they went. Similar to Noah. Noah had to build the boat. Before a raindrop fell. In many ways, if God is calling you to obey something, to, to trust him in something that seems really hard, and maybe a drop of rain hasn't fallen yet. But the Lord calls us, and he is faithful, and he honors his word, and he honors his people who honor the word. And that They were all defeated. They were destroyed. They were brave. This so reminds me of that scene recorded in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And everybody is bowing down to this false god. And they're threatened with their lives. If you don't bow down to, you will die. And they stand before the leader, the emperor in that day. And it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. So there's this confidence. We're called to obey the Lord. We trust that somehow, in some way, he is going to deliver us. But then, they, I love the next line. They says, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Oh, that we would have such courage and valor like that. We believe God delivers his people. We believe God answers the prayers of his people. We believe that God shows up at just the right moment. But even if he doesn't show up for me, I will still obey him. Oh, such valor. We need valor. We need courage. You know what's weird is all of us do courageous things. But we never think about why we do it, right? Most of us drive on two-lane highways where two cars are going at each other at 60 
I mean, I know they're 55, but we're going 60 miles an hour. There's like five feet between us. And you do that how many times when you go out traveling? Like, that's pretty courageous. Why do we do it? Well, we trust the, the mechanical engineers who put the car together. We trust the civil engineers who put the road together. We, we're thankful for the, the crews that keep the roads safe. Why do we do it? It's because we have faith that we can do that courageous thing and not die. Oh, our Lord is so much more wise and competent than any mechanical engineer that put our car together. And so we might do something that to someone's eyes, like you are going really fast. Yeah, but God's got it. I can trust him. I can trust him to forgive the person that he's called me to forgive. I can trust him that, to, that I have to confess the sin that's been hiding in my heart. I can trust him that being bold and sharing about Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven is the best thing for every single person. And I will do it because I believe this is how God is going to deliver. But even if he doesn't this time for me, I'll still do it. Willing, valiance. And then there's this third quality illustrated in this little sneaky assassin (laughs) named Jael. Verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael. By the way, she gets that epithet until uh, the Virgin Mary, like, trumps her. Like, that's a pretty powerful title. Blessed are you, Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, the tent-dwelling woman most blessed. Now, when you read the Bible, like, there's, there, there's these verses that we might think are throwaway verses. So, like, when we were reading chapter 4, verse 11, you might have thought that was a throwaway verse, Right? Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hodab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zenaim, which is near Kadesh. Like, there's about to be a battle. And you're talking about some random dude who lives off the highway. Well, here's the thing. Nothing God does is random. There are no ordinary people and there are no ordinary places. God sovereignly places his people just where he wants them. You might think you're in a small spot. You deserve a bigger spotlight. But God might have you just where you need to be. Be faithful. Going back, we read more about her in verse 25. Well, let's before we read 25, go go back to verse 17 of chapter 4. So Sisera is running away, this big, powerful general who lost his chariot. He fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh, that random guy shows up again. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Oh. Do you see what happened here? Heber, who was connected to Israel through Moses, he's making peace treaties with the local pagan people. He's making oaths of loyalty to Sisera and Jabin, right? Oaths of loyalty were covenantal. But what we'll see is Jael is willing to go against her husband. Verse 25, back in the poem, it says, Sisera asked for water and she gave him milk. 
right? He was kind of just banking on the peace treaty. Hey, will you give me some water? I'm thirsty. And he, she's like over the top. No, no, no. Let me give you milk. It's got to be feeling pretty good right now. She brought him curds and a noble's bowl. Verse 26. But then she sent her hand to the tent peg. By the way, you thought that chapter 4 was descriptive? Look at chapter 5. <laughs> she sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Killed him. This big, powerful general. This random woman off the highway. Kills him. The end of chapter 4 is fun. When Barack is looking for him, Jill's like, oh, you're looking for somebody? He's in my tent. I got him. The poem ends this way. It says, out of the window she peered. Who's the she? It's the mother of Sisera. So this is, think about it. This is back home. The mother of Sisera is back home. Uh, she's looking through the lattice and asking, why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess's answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil, a woman or two for every man? Right? Oh, where's Sisera? Oh, he's gotten delayed with a bunch of raping and pillaging. That's what it's saying. That's why she thinks her son has not made it home. Maybe, maybe they're, they're getting the spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. Maybe she thought she was going to get a sweet Mother's Day gift. But that's not what happened. Verse 31 closes where it says, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends, some of your translations will say, those who love you, will be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. That last little expression about the word friend or those who love, it's this, it is, it's a Hebrew word related to love. Love, loyalty, faithful to the covenant. And that's what Jael does. She says no to the covenant of marriage because her husband has been disobedient to the Lord. And says, I will obey the Lord. I love the Lord even more than my husband. His laws are higher than my, you know, my uh, husband's little peace treaty that he should have never made. And she's loyal and she's honored and she's raised up for, in history as the blessed woman who loves her God. She's the, she's the one that Deborah said, the glory will go to a woman because she was faithful. To her God. Uh, Jesus had this to say about love, recorded in Matthew chapter 10, reading in verse 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Because it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will love it. Jesus calls for this kind of loving loyalty to him. 
that is so fierce, so committed, that it will break up every other relationship, especially any relationship where they don't love the Lord. So if you love the Lord and he's your highest commitment, it'll put a sword against anyone else who's not committed to the Lord. He calls us to love. He calls us to be valiant. He calls us to be willing. And anyone hears this, there's a, there's a I mean, it's got to be a gut punch. I, I'm not like that. I'm like Peter, who was like scared to death when a slave girl just asked, hey, do you know Jesus? I don't know who he is. I saw some hope this week in Hebrews chapter 11, because in Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's this litany of people who God says walked by faith. And in verse 32, it says, what more shall we say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, second one, Barak. That, that kind of hesitant guy in chapter 4 had his doubts. But then he followed God. He repented. And he's preserved here as a person of faith. But what's even better in Hebrews chapter 11 is where it goes, though, in, to ver- in verse 39. It's referring, it says, And all these, all these Old Testament saints, all these models of faith, those who are valiant and, and willing and loving, it says, Though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. It goes on to say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Every one of those heroes of the faith, everyone who was valiant and courageous, they were not perfected. Right? They didn't have it all together. It was pointing ahead to Jesus who would be this perfect one who dies in our place. All of our hesitations, all our doubts, all our lack of valor, all those times we haven't been willing, all those times where we didn't love, someone had to pay for those. And Hebrews shows, look to him. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. He brings you home. How? Because he was faithful to the end. He made his good confession before Pilate. He took the cross. He obeyed his father. For everywhere places we were not willing, valiant, or loving, Jesus was loving, valiant, and willing. And so we trust in him. We believe in him. But do know that in believing in him, trusting him, getting his forgiveness, he does then send us back out to be willing. And to be valiant, be loving. I was thinking of one man that models this well, was a, a guy named Dwight. I don't know if you know much about Dwight. Dwight was born in Massachusetts. Uh, he made it all the way through fifth grade and said, I'm done. Uh, tried to, his own little quick ri- get rich, quick screams, schemes by moving to Boston, and he kind of ran out of money. And so his uncle said, okay, young punk, 17 years old, uh, you can work in my shoe store but you have to go to church. I like that. 
Well, this Dwight guy started going to church. He actually began to trust Jesus, and God started working in his life. But something dramatic happened when Uncle sent him to Chicago and said, go sell shoes in Chicago. Now, that's a big place to make a lot of money, and that was Dwight's plan. But then he also got roped into teaching Sunday school for the YMCA. And he started teaching in the YMCA these little kids, a lot of them coming off the street. He began to see that God's word was changing their lives. And he had a choice to make. Right? Do I keep selling <laughs> shoe soles? <laughs> or do we want to see God save souls? And they made that fateful decision. He's gone down in history as a man named D.L. Moody, who became this worldwide evangelist. He developed training schools for men and women. He saw many kids come to know Jesus. But he was like crazy willing, willing, valiant, and loving. One of my favorite scenes is when people were kind of mad at him because his evangelism was weird. Like, oh, you're talking, everywhere you go, you're doing all these weird things. And he said, well, you know what? Uh, I'll keep doing my weird, bad evangelism while you don't do your evangelism at all. And God uses the willing. And so my prayer for us is that we would just be willing, that we would be valiant, that we would be loving unto the Lord. Father, would you help us? For we fall so short. We thank you for the heroes of, of the past, those who did go out to fight when you called them to fight. We pray that we would fight the good fight of faith. Uh, we would do it with all the grace and mercy and strength that the Holy Spirit provides. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.